I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no flying saucer. This is the Aho and Carr episode. For all the talk about it within the more skeptical end of those who look at the world of flying saucers, there's relatively few cases of what you might call outright fraud, like provable legal fraud. Is every saucer book accurate and true? No. But when it comes to what happens when the money changes hands, things have often been on the up and up. George Adamski is selling you a book. If you get the book and he gets your money, then it's a square deal. That doesn't mean that saucer types have always told the truth. But legally actionable actions tend to be the exception rather than the rule. When the law gets involved, it tends to be when someone promises something tangible, something that represents financial gain or value. When you sell a book or a ticket, like I said, that's pretty straightforward. When you sell shares of a company or other kinds of investments, that can be a problem. And that's the problem we'll see today with Wayne S. Aho and especially Otis T. Carr. Carr in particular is part of that rogues gallery of classic golden age flying saucer characters. I imagine he hung out with Wilhelm Schmidt at some point. Wayne Aho was born in 1916 and in 1972 set down a definitive account of his encounters with otherworldly things in a booklet called Mojave Desert Experience. And in the course of this book, he, he sort of talks about his life as well. So we will start with this foundational text. He begins the book this way. On the Mojave Desert at the full moon of May 1957, a spacecraft landed near me and guided me throughout the night. Prophecies were given to me concerning the destiny of the planet and its civilization. I was instructed about certain crisis periods for the world, the probable outcome of those, and my part in them. The experience was profound and changed the course of my life. It is recorded herewith for posterity and for anyone who can benefit from it. Yes, we have a new background sound. I was bored. Like most contactees, however, things didn't just start in 1957. As I've analyzed this experience over the years, I realized there is a whole life sequence involved. Events leading up to it began early in life in the hills near Woodland, Washington, where I was born. One of the keys, and perhaps the most important, occurred at the age of 12 on a warm, sunny day in summer. I went to a hill locally known as Shoemaker Mountain, overlooking the valley where the Lewis River joins the Columbia. As I remember, I had been reading about the Lewis and Clark expedition and thinking about the work of the pioneers to open up the West. My father and mother had cleared a farm out of the forest nine miles from Woodland. Father had described how he built the first road of three or four miles with only hand tools. As I sat in introspection, suddenly I felt a thrill of feeling, which started at the top of my head and went down my entire spine. In later life, I learned this was one indication of the presence of a spiritual being. As this feeling came, I asked within myself, what does this mean, this wonderful feeling? To my inner hearing, not from my own mind, came the answer, clear and perfect. There is something you can do during this lifetime that will be of benefit to your civilization. I clearly remember each word to this day. My feeling was not fearful, but rather one of humility. I slid down from the stump and walked home slowly, deep in thought, wondering what a skinny kid of 12 could do to help a civilization. That was a real big word. 
what I like about this is that this, this is a story where he has a sort of profound experience, but there isn't sort of the overblown. And then a craft came out and then this blonde lady came out and said that, you know, we had been married back on Venus back in an earlier lifetime. You know, apologies to Howard Menger, but you know, it, it's not overblown. It's a really sort of low key story. And I love the, the little end sentence where, where he talks about how, you know, what does a kid of 12 do? with this information and that the phrase civilization, that was a big word. I, I just, I just like that. That seems, that seems like a mature way to have looked at it for a kid of 12. Eho then goes on to explain that he went into the national guard, then the regular army and was assigned to a unit in Alaska as a sergeant before the outbreak of world war two. He underwent officer training and participated in the D-Day landings of 1944 he doesn't explain the sequence of events exactly, but by the end of the war, he says he was a combat intelligence officer and, after the war, worked in logging in Northern California. He claims to have had a telepathic experience in 1948. My first clear-cut telepathic experience with those who fly the spacecraft came about 1948 while I was operating a noisy D-7 logging tractor or bulldozer. I had read in the newspaper of an airplane crash with no survivors. Observers in the area noted unidentified flying objects near the scene of the crash during the three days following. As I operated the bulldozer, I asked, Who are those strange beings flying their craft at this scene, and why are they there? The answer that came was amazing. We are the caretakers of the souls of the dead. This sets Aho on a course of studying about ESP and psychic phenomena. He name-drops Edgar Cayce and Dr. Ryan's investigations at Duke University. By the 1950s, however, his perspective had shifted a bit. About the year 1955, I became aware of an impending danger cycle on the Earth from the nuclear threat. I was beginning to feel events on Earth coming to an hour of decision. I have learned to examine words such as, I feel it in my bones. My ever deeper realization is that man has a recording device that tells him many things, even the future. He also sees something in the sky. Sort of. It's more a perception than something physical that he saw, from the description, anyway. The next important experience in my life came while I was moving heavy equipment in the mountains east of Eureka, California. I awakened one night after an experience where I was looking upward from within the earth. In the heavens above the earth's shell, I saw a brilliant white flash in the skies. Immediately afterward, I saw a crack open up in a jagged line two-thirds of the way from horizon to horizon. The thought flowed through my mind that this could be a crack in the surface of the Earth. I was in a state bordering on shock until morning. With the development of nuclear weapons on the planet, I wondered if this could indicate a nuclear catastrophe. He tells a friend about the encounter and is invited to the giant rock flying saucer convention. He hears from others who have seen similar cracks in the sky. Aho is increasingly intrigued by what he heard at the convention and returns the next year, which would have been 1957. While there, he had another otherworldly experience. The energy in my back took me across the airstrip and out into the desert toward 29 Palms. It was nearly 10 p.m. and a full moon was overhead. I watched the nearby hills to keep my bearings as I walked through the yucca and desert growth. Then my attention was drawn to an object in the sky to my left which was pulsing like a star, but at a slower rate, and which seemed closer than the stars. Suddenly, it flashed an orange light. And I thought, what is this strange star-like object flashing color? Then it started toward me from about 18 miles away. 
It swept across the sky as a beautiful, majestic, egg-shaped light, white in color, and stopped directly in front of me a thousand to fifteen hundred feet above the desert floor and a quarter of a mile away. There it changed to a crimson sphere about twenty-five feet in diameter. Just previously, I'd seen a car careening wildly in the direction of Giant Rock, with its occupants apparently frightened by the craft. I felt no fear, and walked toward the object, sending out the thought, You are obviously one of these ships. I want to see you land and find out what you are. In a few minutes, the object began to glide downward and landed about two miles from me, changing back to a white egg-shaped light. All this time, he's being directed by what he calls an energy in his back. It's that same thrilling feeling he described feeling as a child. He's guided around the desert and gets the impression that he's being chosen for a spiritual mission by these beings. He expresses out loud his thanks to the entities for their guidance, and he gets a response. As my voice went out, I was surprised to hear these words added from my consciousness. Millions of souls upon the earth are awakening. I believe this civilization can be saved. Saved from what? These words were conveyed to my consciousness. Your civilization is on the edge of a precipice, and only the spiritually motivated people can guide your civilization, or a remnant of it, through the critical days ahead. I breathed a sigh of relief and thought, that's close, but we can make it. I'm an optimist by nature. I was told the responsibility is very great. There is no room for mistakes. I stepped back with a feeling of relief. It was close, but we could make it. I felt I had been shown two crisis periods that our civilization would face sometime in the future. What were those crisis periods? Aho claims, and remember, he wrote this in 1972 about his earlier 1950s experiences. He claims that the first crisis period was the Arab-Israeli conflict that we'd call the Six-Day War. That's the only one that fits his description of occurring 10 years after his 1957 experience. Aho also claims that he wrote to the CIA with a warning about the war. Now, the other one is a little more confusing. He mentions several events, but he settles on the North Korean capture of the USS Pueblo and its crew's sort of long, sort of brutal captivity there in the 1960s as being the other key event, but talks about how, in this case, this event did not lead to a war, which is what he had been expecting. Following his visions of these future events, Wayne Aho has a final experience at Giant Rock. The final incident came as the sun was coming up. I was being guided along a footpath in the desert when my heart was gripped by the sound of a bird which sang halfway through its song, and then its voice broke as if in anguish. My mind voiced the question, what is this symbolism? Is this the sadness of the planet, or is this a soul in anguish? The thought was horrifying, and my prayers went out to the bird even before I saw it. I came to where the bird was, and to my surprise, it did not fly away. It was a few feet to the right of the path I was following. I was pressed to my knees with the feeling that I could pray for this bird. I began to repeat silently various affirmations, such as, With God, all things are possible, and nothing is impossible, and I was pleased to find the bird responding. It began to sing through its whole song. A sweet story about a singing bird and not one dang alien to be found. I, I like Wayne Aho. He finishes up Mojave Desert Experience by explaining that he has had several more experiences of feeling the being's presence, and he describes how after his giant rock encounters, he moved to Washington, D.C., and met with numerous members of Congress about his experiences and his warnings about the future. He claims that the CIA wanted to talk to him as well. We have some indication of what 
Aho was up to in Washington from contemporary news accounts. This is from national columnist George Dixon on July 26, 1957. The latest congressional office to be invaded by Aho was that of Senator Wallace F. Bennett of Utah. Senator Bennett did as a number of his colleagues did before him. He forwarded all of Aho's material to me, and I am worried as to why I was singled out. I wonder if these senators suspect anything. Anyway, Senator Bennett wrote me, The other night, a very dedicated gentleman came to my office. He left this material after assuring us that the flying saucer business is no joke, that hundreds of them have landed, and that literally thousands of these beings from outer space are now living and working on Earth, helping us solve our problems. I'm happy to commit the whole problem to your tender mercies. That is indeed sweet of Senator Bennett, but I do not know if I am ready for it yet either. This disturbing thought keeps intruding. If these otherworld creatures are so supernally intelligent as Aho claims, and are using this intelligence to help us solve our problems, why aren't they doing a better job? Aho also attempted to brief, or bother, take your pick, the Defense Department. The Associated Press carried this story, and my version of the story comes from the Frederick, Oklahoma Leader, September 10th, 1957, headline, Pentagon Unmoved by Voices. The Pentagon has been listening to some voices from Venus, but the men assigned to listening to voices from outer space said they weren't impressed. A fellow named Wayne S. Aho tuned the Pentagon in last month on a little recorded Venusian chit-chat as translated by a Daytona, Florida medium. The medium was identified as Enid Brady. The Venusians are identified as Simitrali, Humamatra, and two flying saucer pilots, Mandel and Johan. The Defense Department's reaction to one and a half hours worth of listening was, quote, unimpressive and unconvincing, end quote. One spokesman indicated that was understating the case. But Aho, who asked the military to hear the recording, and his associates aren't giving up. Aho, a former Air Force intelligence officer, argues that the time for ridicule over so-called flying saucers is, quote, long since past. Incidentally, Enid said Venus calls her flying ships ventilas, not saucers, and has perfected a, quote, new globular one which will not scorch the Earth when it lands. A moderate speed for the new ships is 4,000 to 6,000 miles per hour as you measure it, end quote. In part of the recordings Aho played for the United Press Monday and heard earlier by the Defense Department, one of the pilot voices says after describing the new ships, quote, I wish that I could tell you of the trouble I had with the old ones. They went out of control when they neared Earth. End quote. A month later, there was another column by Washington, D.C. columnist George Dixon that appeared in many newspapers, including where I got it, the Allentown, Pennsylvania Morning Call of October 11, 1957. In this, we see Aho trying to comfort Dixon in the face of Soviet space supremacy. This column was part of Dixon's regular Washington Scene series and was titled Saucermen Elect, and I love it very much. Along about this time every year, I used to don philosophical motley and marry Andrew a piece on Wasn't It Wonderful How Americans Could Shut Everything Bothersome From Their Minds and Worry Only About the World Series? I'm skipping the hardened perennial this year. What with that Soviet satellite beep beeping above our heads, it might seem a trifle forced. I'd prefer to be concerned only with the World Series, but the trouble now is that even if you stick your head in the sand, you can still hear the beep beep. The Russians should be ashamed of themselves for upsetting the tranquility of our nursery. 
I was feeling pretty low about this, and even the sage observation of our elder stateswoman Gwen Caffritz, the Russians have so many satellites, what's one more, failed to titillate me out of the blues. But just when I was swinging in my most morbid orbit, my door opened and in walked Major Wayne S. Aho, the flying saucer man. Major Aho, who has seen more saucers than you've been in your cups, said he has come to put my mind at rest. He said I had no need to be concerned about the Soviet satellite. It was being kept under close surveillance by the flying saucers and that the moment it uttered one false beep, the saucer men would dish it. Major Aho, who makes no conscious effort to be as amusing as Mrs. Caffritz, revealed under practically no duress that he is now head of an outfit called Washington Saucer Intelligence. He declared that Washington Saucer Intelligence is not worried about the Russian space sphere either, because it has had word from considerably farther out in space that the saucer people will intervene in the nick of time to save this planet from destroying itself. He said these non-Russian space people know everything that's going on, every place on the globe, because they have mastered the trick of tuning in on the human brain. They're not only watching, but mind-reading us. I piously trust they were not tuned in on me about 11.15 last night. The saucer men may be benevolent and the communists malign, but I don't think I want the former destroying my privacy much more than I want the latter destroying my life. Between the Russians using outer space to read our military secrets and the saucer men using it to read our minds, there isn't going to be much we can keep to ourselves. There seems to be only one thing left for a secretive type like me, where an insulated hat with classified stamped across the top of it. Who in the name of hell is Gwen Caffritz? Oh, footnote noise, how I've missed you. Gwen Caffritz was the wife of Morris Caffritz, a Washington, D.C. real estate developer and philanthropist. Mrs. Caffritz was a fixture in the Washington, D.C. world in the 1950s and 60s and so forth. And, and this is from her 1988 obituary in the New York Times. The writer said, quote, Mrs. Caffritz combined wealth, effervescence, and numerous contacts in business and government into a potent concoction of lavish entertainments that in Washington are as much a part of the political life as sessions of Congress. Initially, she competed with Pearl Mesta as Washington's premier hostess, the two vying to snare the most prominent guests. After Mrs. Mesta was appointed ambassador to Luxembourg in 1949, Mrs. Caffritz undertook her campaign in earnest. A four-page account in Life magazine depicted her favorite summer soiree, one to two hundred guests in evening dress, gathered for mint juleps and steaks on the barbecue in her backyard overlooking all of Washington, end quote. So now you know. And I'll expect you all to work weird Gwen Caffert's references into your conversation from now on. For example, if you're at a barbecue and you see somebody with a steak and a mint julep, you can exclaim, ho, the Gwen Caffert special. And then you can find yourself being beaten severely, thrown in your car, and never invited to a barbecue again. So during this time, Aho was also touring with Reinhold Schmidt, who you'll remember from our Lights Camera Reinhold episode. Aho seemed to think Schmidt's story was on the up and up, or at least he claimed to. In this clip of Aho introducing Reinhold to the audience at a meeting of the Flying Saucer Research Group in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in 1958. With my work in Washington, D.C., I began to investigate this situation. I have a friend at Kearney, Nebraska, look into this situation. Correspondence went back and forth, and I received certain material and information to indicate that this man was telling of a true experience and that he had been subjected to very inhuman treatment because of the fact that he recorded this experience. 
As far as I've been able to determine, Aho was not involved with uh, Schmidt's criminal activities, as outlined in our Reinhold Schmidt episode. It was also during this time, in the late 1950s, that Aho was being mistaken for a much more prominent flying saucer figure. News reports and letters reaching NICAP indicate that false stories have been circulating to the effect that Major Donald E. Kehoe, NICAP director, attended the spacecraft convention at Giant Rock, California, sponsored by George Van Tassel. Major Kehoe did not attend this convention, which was held on May 23rd and 24th. NICAP does not know who is responsible for the reports. Due to similarity in names, Major Kehoe is frequently confused with Richard Kehoe, no relative, contact claimant in California, and Mr. Wayne Aho, currently employed by Otis T. Carr Enterprises. Over the years, many have speculated that Aho's use of the title Major was mostly an attempt to sort of make people think he was more prominent in the field than he was. That people would assume he was the Major something ho from that, you know, that one big saucer organization. But I mean, his name was Aho, so I'm not sh- Wait. What's Otis T. Carr Enterprises? Otis T. Carr was not a flying saucer person, not really, but he certainly was saucer adjacent. Born in 1904 in West Virginia, Carr worked in various hotels as a night clerk. In one of these hotels, apparently, he met Nikola Tesla. I don't have to tell you who he is. Maybe. I'm not going to. Learning from him the principles of suppressed science. One writer we've encountered who admired Carr was Dana Howard, who devotes the whole chapter of her book Up Rainbow Hill to him. Otis Carr sat at the feet of the great Tesla for three long years. He knew that this unusual man might have changed the momentum of the world and advanced global civilization more than a thousand years had his greatest of all creations not been suppressed because it would have upset our well-grooved economy. But Tesla left one device that cannot be suppressed, the flaming guidepost for his young disciple. If you understand the inventions of Tesla, he said, you must first attune your mind to God. Oh, you just need to attune your mind to God. It's not like there have been lots of disputes and discussions and debate and controversy about how exactly to do that. In 1958, Carr published a book called Dimensions of Mystery. Dimensions of Mystery, which sounds like a radio science fiction program or one of those Marvel comics they had before superheroes got their own title, like Astonishing Tales or something. It's a weird book. Really weird. So we're going to look at it because that's what we do. In the dedications, along with his wife and family, is this message from Carr, dedicated to Miss Adele Tippett, quote, who innocently inspired lethargy into action. It's nice to have someone to blame for the 83 pages of boredom and oddness that follows. The introduction, headed First Thought, is is mostly a, a series of questions such as, Poor ignorant humanity on this condemned sphere, how long must it be before you learn the lesson that only God is great? Can you sense the spiritual famine that may just be around the corner? Can you find the true meaning of the word neighbor? Is justice sold over the bargain counter? Must there be a profit in compassion? Truthfully, the dialectics tell us that matter is always becoming in its materialistic change, but who will first attempt to change the element or split the atom of love? Sad, sad fallen man. Where will you seek stock market margin if the heavens ignite? Who will split the atom of love? Who? I ask you. Next up, we have a forest fable. This is a longish story about Suzanne and Robert, who are raindrops, or something. I have no idea. 
There's a link to the book in the show notes. I encourage you to read A Forest Fable on your own. Then we have poetry. 24 pages of poetry, sweet lord. The next section is called Mystical Revelations and seems to be an account of Carr's life, more or less, as related through the uh, the Sphinx from ancient Egypt. No, really. Suddenly, without a flicker of the candle's flame, something happened in time and space, and the spirit of the man in his study in Baltimore stood in the Egyptian desert, and by the light of a full desert moon, he gazed up at the countenance of the Sphinx and with wonderment pondered the great enigma, the unsolvable mystery. Who were they? And why did they, many thousands of moons past a hundred centuries or more, build this great monstrosity, the body of a lion and the head of a human? Why? Why indeed. We learn that the subject has been chosen by God from birth and waylaid and tormented by Lucifer as a result of his chosen status, suffering persecution. Persecution which meant that discoveries like this one would take a long time to come to fruition. And just keep in mind, this is the Sphinx talking to him. We come now to the year 1938, when, again, thy immortal spirit and soul received its second message from the cosmic... The mad dog in Central Europe was at the height of his feast on human blood and his betrayal of human spirit when he discovered that the law, the mighty atom, and the release of its energy were dimensional. In shocking, startling revelations, you knew the significance of the fourth division of a concentric curve and the sixth geometric division of the sphere. You discovered for yourself, without textbook research or recourse to the archives of arcane and esoteric wisdom, that the equilateral triangle held within its form and dimensions the story of creation. You knew for yourself that the motion and velocity of the planet Earth could be dimensionally duplicated in a relative measure and equation, and that the energies involved could thereby be made manifest. I don't know about you, but it seems like the the Sphinx sort of sounds like Gordon Creighton, the editor of Flying Saucer Review. So this sort of spiritual and sort of scientific, I guess, message is followed by a section called The Testament. Here we get more sort of spirituality stuff and some half-baked Cold War-flavored eschatology. I don't think the Sphinx is narrating this, so I'm going to have to come up with another voice. Love is the atomic force of God. It is vibratory and it covers the entire spectrum of all elements. It has the highest and the lowest pitch in the full scale of all being, and it is now ruling the universe, sometimes with and sometimes in contest with the material atoms, the material atoms of organic and electrical flame. Someday soon, it is prayed by me and all of the sincere followers of St. John, the love atom will conquer the planet Earth, and then the biblical prophecy will be justified. The lamb and lion will gamble together and none will wonder why. In order for this to materialize, the immortal Christ must return to the planet Earth and the evil Lucifer must be cast aside. The good book emphatically states that he will be chained for a thousand years. Is that time nigh? This is like if somebody read a, like a George Hunt Williamson book and said, This, this is the prose style I am going to emulate. As we near the end of the book, are we going to learn anything about free energy or anti-gravity or anything? And why all the po- poetry and fables? And a talking sphinx, what is going on here? Luckily, Carr sort of jumps into like himself instead of all these weird sort of personas presenting this weird stuff and kind of explains it to us. 
The reason this work was created is for the fact it reveals and conceals. For contained within these pages in simple words and phrases yet hard to decipher are the complete specifications for a fourth dimensional gravity engine that utilizes the straight line and the curve. This engine will operate continuously without tension or the dissipation of the energy that causes it to operate. It will perform many tasks in the transmission of power by belts, gears, drive shafts, crankshafts, and so forth. The conversion of electricity into usable energy by operating conventional dynamos and generators is its major field of utilization. Ah, the old, this book is weird because the whole thing is a code for the very invention that I'm talking about. Andy's got a plan to test this thing out, but it's going to take some planning because it's going to be dangerous as heck. He talks about how he's the only one who will be available to do the test, the only one he will allow to do the test. He won't let anybody help him because if something goes wrong, uh, quote, the immediate area of the test may become devastatingly uninhabitable. I could not mortally survive it. Wow. I mean, that's that's rough, but it, it sort of reminds us of the, uh, the sort of fears when they were testing the first atomic bombs that it would set off a chain reaction that would be you know, sort of planetary-wide destruction-oriented in nature. We get some more scientific talk as well, but soon Carr lapses back into his spiritualist talk, which is actually pretty fun, I think, when he's talking about God's atom of love and stuff like that. Of course, as he points out, we here in modern society don't know what love's all about at all, obviously. Millions of trash words are written yearly in many languages about love, Always it is cheapened and classified in many ways as an emotion of sex, a biological urge, a libido of the ego, and so on. And always the sinister hand of sin is incorporated by the devil himself, who throws in the face of God his filthy trinity of insult, fornication, and adultery or acts of lewdness. This might be the most prophetic part of the whole thing. I believe Carr was foreseeing the advent of self-published alien erotic romance novels on Amazon. Um... Not that I've read any of these, uh, but I've read the descriptions, and that's more than enough for me. Libido of the ego is a good phrase, too, like something superstar Billy Graham would work into a wrestling interview back in 1972 or so. Fortunately, Otis settles down again and gets back on topic. Now again, back to my discovery and my pilot test. This simple little engine of mine, built in part from 10 cent store hardware, embodies the atom of organic flame. And that is why for the past three years, I've searched my heart for the answer of how to bring this to the exclusive attention of Christian men of authority. And now that the inspiration is here, there is a measure of happiness and peace in my soul. Unfortunately, Otis will have to abandon his search for Christian men of authority to talk to about this and resort to talking to the Defense Department. Now, when Carr signs off at the end of this, he uses a date of 1952, even though the book's copyright is 1958. This seems to be, from what I can figure out, an attempt to make all of this seem like a much longer-term project than it might actually have been, since we first start seeing Carr appearing in news reports in 1957. Actually, in October of 1957, right when Wayne Aho was bothering senators in the Capitol cafeteria, we start to see mention of Otis T. Carr and his endeavors. The Associated Press covered the story out of Baltimore, so this was a national thing in newspapers from Chattanooga to Lubbock. New spaceship may use gravity. Use in circular motion machines success, say Baltimore inventors. 
A group of Baltimoreans claim today they have been able to utilize gravity in circular motion machines capable of powering everything from hearing aids to space cruisers. Otis T. Carr first announced his claim at a news conference called by OTC Enterprises Incorporated, of which he is president. He further detailed his claims today in an interview and demonstration of a crude model of a circular motion machine, which he said is the principle of a free energy circular foil spacecraft he can build if someone puts up the money. He said the machine can be adapted to devices of any size to produce continuous power, absolutely free of dissipation. Its immediate application, Carr said, would be in a spacecraft, either manned or remote-controlled, which would be able to hedgehop among the planets in controlled flight. It could land or take off as desired on the Earth, the Moon, or any planets in the Earth's solar system, he said. Neither Carr nor any of his associates has any formal education in science or engineering. They said their claims are based on the most simple practical applications of natural laws and discoveries of the giants of science and mathematics. A 53-year-old native of Elkins, West Virginia, Carr says he has financed his research with his own modest funds and through private funds supplied by friends. He claims to have built thousands of working models. If somebody puts up the money? UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. Oh, thank you, Jane. It's been a while. So that was the story from the Chattanooga Daily Times on October 29th, 1957. It was an AP story, so like I said, it traveled around in the Lubbock Avalanche. It's a great newspaper name. Um, the Lubbock Avalanche of two days later has some additional details. Carr and his associates said they're withholding full disclosure of their claim developments. They added that this is only to avoid any suppression of what they consider concepts which could revolutionize the technology and economy of the world. Carr said copies of a 16-page copyrighted brochure outlining his claims in general terms were sent last Thursday by registered mail to President Eisenhower, members of the cabinet, and the Atomic Energy Commission. He promised full disclosure of designs, principles, and application of the discoveries he claims as soon as the government, industry, or anyone else comes forth with the funds to produce them and guarantees the information be made available to the world. So also in the story, Carr attributes the principles involved to the work of, quote, principally Albert Einstein and based upon the discoveries of Einstein, Newton, Bacon, Archimedes, and others. Why no specific mention of Tesla? I mean, he sat at his knee for three years. Hmm. Carr also gives some hints as to the, the general scientific principles involved with this device. He said the same free energy which causes the Earth to rotate on its axis and orbit around the Sun will turn a machine he described as two cones joined at their circular bases. When the rotation of such a machine reaches a certain velocity relative to the Earth's orbital velocity, Carr said it will take off. The principle on which Carr said such circular motion machines would operate is that, quote, any vehicle accelerated to an axis rotation relative to its attractive inertial mass, the Earth, immediately becomes activated by free space energy and acts as an independent force. My D- in high school physics says that makes a lot of sense. I mean, free space energy totally sounds like a real thing. Carr hoped to get powerful, important people developed in the adoption and promotion of his inventions, but it wasn't working. From a uh, December 1957 newspaper, the Allentown Morning Call headline, Army Turns Down Space Vehicle Plan. The Army said today it had looked over a model of a proposed space vehicle developed by Otis T. Carr of Baltimore, but has no interest in the project. 
In response to a question, a spokesman said Army representatives met with Carr in Baltimore on Monday to investigate his model. The spokesman said, quote, The model shown does not meet present or foreseeable needs of the Army, and the Army has no further interest in the project as presented. End quote. Carr's OTC Enterprises Incorporated, when it announced its plans October 28th, said it had developed a method of using gravity in circular motion machines capable of powering everything from hearing aids to space cruisers. I think it's impressive, with the caveat that I know nothing about 1950s Army procurement procedures, that they met with him at all. Carr appeared on the Long John Nebel Show in April of 1958 to explain his craft to the vast overnight listening audience. Nebel began the program by detailing the cost of the finished product to potential customers. According to the schedule here, the delivered price payable in full-on delivery with no prior commitment required and including all tooling and other overhead is $20 million. Additional identical units on same schedule for $4 million each. That's a lot of money. My name is Long John. We call this the party line. So basically, you buy one for $20 million, and then you have the ability to buy additional identical things for only $4 million apiece. That pricing structure seems off to me. As part of the program, uh, Nebel had on a guest, cybernetician, I don't know what a cybernetician is, Ben Isquith. And um, he had the job of, of sort of grilling Carr on some of the technical details of the saucer. In what way is your invention different from the unidentified flying object which you have seen? Well, uh, we do not, uh, naturally not having been able to examine the object we saw due to their great velocity, uh, we can't say with certainty that they are similar to ours, but the principle we feel is the same. Our our design utilizes gravity, electromagnetism, and electromotive force in a relative field to get its functional operation. I haven't understood a single word of, the, of your last sentence. Without getting, <clears throat> excuse me, without getting it all technical, right. could you sort of make it a little bit easier? Uh, we will uh, use... Uh, this statement that we use an electrified center. It's a center power core. Now this is what we call an accumulator. In the vernacular sense, it is a factory. It is a storage cell, an accumulation of storage cells, <coughs> which provide electromotive force in the same manner that any known battery produces electromotive force. Is that what you're holding in your hand now? That's right. This is what we're holding. Could you in describe hand. it to the listening audience? Uh, this is a dimensional product. It is designed with the dimensions of space itself in mind. And it, we say that it is truly the geometric form of space because it is completely round and completely square. Now, uh, in in this, surfaces are all round. But when we show it this way, the surfaces are square. Okay, I guess. Although, I think... I haven't understood a single word of, the, of your last sentence. May have to enter the rotation of 
sort of reaction sounds on here. I don't know if we're halfway through. I think we may be more than halfway through. I hope we're a little more than halfway through. When we come back, we'll see what happens when you make promises you can't keep. Next time, this is the plan anyway, something a little different again. We'll be talking to Matthew Kressel, author of a new book on the classic, yes it is, shut up, NBC program Dark Skies, which ran for a season back in the mid-90s. It's the first interview-style episode we've done, so I hope you enjoy it. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated. And uh, it's how I pay for my subscription to newspapers.com to get all these great newspaper articles about all of these great people. So, again, blame the donors. We're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can mail us things at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life is available anywhere you can find podcasts and a few places you can't. So, during 1958, Major Aho joins OTC Enterprises in a public information role. In December of 1958, there's an article on Carr and Aho in the Tucson Citizen with the headline, Uneasy Over Trip to Moon? Not Flying Saucer Man Aho. The article explains that Aho and Carr will take a flight to the moon in December 1959 and that Carr has already completed test flights with a model of the craft. Aho has some lofty goals for the trip. I mean, even loftier than going to the moon. I hope that by this trip we can do something to bring a peaceful space age into being. I don't think we can ever conquer space, but if we begin to understand space, we can become true space travelers. The round trip to the moon will take seven days, Aho said. Just in case everything doesn't go as planned, Aho has covered this eventuality. I've instructed OTC to prepare a release that we've been detained by moon women if we're not back in the prescribed seven days. I like to think that Aho's Moon Woman comment was inspired by the 1953 movie Cat Women on the Moon, but somehow I don't think so. Long John Nebel describes his experiences with Carr in his memoir, The Way Out World. It's Easter. It's 1958. It's Frontier World, an amusement park in Oklahoma City. Nebel explains that Carr was going to show off a six-foot diameter prototype of the craft, now dubbed the OTC-X1 and that it would, quote, prove the power of the Utron Accumulator. The Utron Accumulator was Carr's invention that made the OTCX-1 possible. Neville went out to the Sooner State. I landed in the western metropolis with several friends of mine to discover that the spacecraft was hidden away on the outskirts of town and no one was being permitted to see it. Sitting in a little early morning restaurant a thousand miles away from Broadway, with the rain pouring down on the gray dawn highway outside, this report seemed a little ominous. However, several of us were more curious than tired, and we decided to drive out to the mysterious hangar and see what was going on. What was going on was not a lot. They weren't permitted to see the craft, and Carr was nowhere to, were, meh, Carr was nowhere to be found. Nebel and his pals finally tracked Carr down to a hospital where he has throat trouble. There is no test flight. Instead, quote, an associate of Carr's, probably Aho, gave a speech, and it was explained that a mercury leak was responsible for the lack of a flight demonstration. 
Fate magazine in its August 1959 issue had a feature story on the disaster written by W.E. Dussois, which doesn't sound like a real name at all. Indeed, all I could find when I googled it were references to the perfume Eau de Soie. If anyone knows which of the Fate regulars wrote this, let me know. Launching time was set for 3 p.m. Sunday, April 19th. Two and a half hours past this time, Major Wayne Aho finally announced that the launching had to be postponed because of technical difficulties. Later, it was stated by OTC officials that one bearing housing was, quote, off one-sixteenth of an inch. Most of the major flying saucer clubs had ignored the launching. Except for a story in early April, there was no advanced news on Carr's experiment in Oklahoma City newspapers. One Oklahoma City television reporter expressed the general feeling of the townspeople. This thing will never leave the ground, and I feel that a great deal of the ballyhoo they're giving out is tied in with the ride at Frontier City. I've tried constantly to get in to see the saucer model, but they've kept it hidden. Equally well hidden was Carr himself. He was finally located in Mercy Hospital, room 302, by John Nebel, the famed Long John of WOR, New York City. Carr did not show up at a meeting at a local church the day before the scheduled launching, but a taped speech was delivered to the 70 people who attended. Barring any flat tires, Carr said, I feel that history will be made Sunday afternoon when the model of the OTC-X1 is launched here. Dussois, or whoever, concluded with a couple fairly good questions about the whole affair. Why was there no publicity about the launching in Oklahoma City for two weeks before the model was supposed to fly? How could any engineer make a mistake of one-sixteenth of an inch in a precision part? This would be similar to a navigator landing an airplane 300 miles off course. A mistake of one ten-thousandth of an inch can be a major engineering calamity. Hey, the newspaper specifically said Carr was not an engineer. The Fate article also notes the announcement of the December 1959 moonshot by Aho and Carr. But the December 1959 date came and went without a flight from the OTC-X1. Now, it must be said that Carr was working on some kind of cool and saucer-shaped thing, but it was a ride for the Frontier World Amusement Park that looked like a flying saucer. This is the description from the patent. Yes, a real patent. Quote, This invention relates generally to improvements in amusement devices and more particularly to an improved amusement device of the type wherein the passengers will receive the impression of riding in an interplanetary spacecraft. End quote. It sounds like a less vomitous version of the Gravitron, a carnival ride I have always avoided. So, I was looking at Wayne Aho's FBI file from around this time. And to be honest, most of Aho's FBI file is very focused on investigating claims that he had served in the army, because that was what most of the concerns that were submitted to FBI field offices concerned, that this guy said he was an army major or had been an army major and worked in intelligence. So that was mostly what the FBI was focused on, ensuring that nobody was impersonating a, uh, a, a military or government official. But I also came along this little tidbit. On October 6, 1958, Redacted telephonically contacted the Chicago office and advised that he had attended the lecture given by Carr and Aho on Saturday night, October 4, 1958. He stated that Major Aho advised that he was formerly a major in the United States Air Force, where he had been assigned to an intelligence unit. 
Aho claimed to be a friend of the inventor of the AC motor and claimed a great knowledge of electrical circuits. Aho indicated he would be the first passenger to the moon. Redacted stated that both Carr and Aho indicated they would need $200 million to prepare for their trip and that the audience would receive a letter in the near future wherein they would be advised as to how they could contribute to this venture. Also, there were references to someone who had contacted the FBI and mentioned a $150, quote, investment they had made in OTC Enterprises. Hmm. So, why didn't the moon flight take place? And no, you can't say because the flying saucer had a mercury leak. In May 1959, this story appeared in the Daily Oklahoman newspaper out of Oklahoma City. Saucer inventor, helpers charged. Otis T. Carr, inventor of a flying saucer which hasn't flown, was charged Thursday with violating state regulations on stock sales. Also charged were Richard Colton, vice president of the OTC Enterprises, which Carr heads, Wayne Aho, a former Army major and public information director, and Laurie Kendrick, sales director for the company. Carr was arraigned Tuesday afternoon and posted a $1,000 bond pending preliminary hearing at 9 a.m. Carr testified his company had offered, quote, options to buy stock, end quote, but had not been involved in any stock sales. He admitted that his company had not registered with either the Federal Securities Commission or the Oklahoma Securities Commission. Carr discussed his company's operations and said his flying saucer, known technically as the X-1, was capable of flying into outer space following, quote, a few adjustments. Following wide publicity, an April launching date was set and a crowd gathered at Frontier City to see the spaceship fly, but Carr said the machine was not ready and the demonstration was canceled. Carr, a former hotel clerk, first started his enterprise in Baltimore, Maryland, but moved to Oklahoma City after appearing here before Horizons Unlimited, a local group interested in flying saucers as a means for conquering outer space. Oh, Otis and Wayne... So, basically, Carr was selling investments without having done any of the things that someone has to do to actually legally sell stock. Was it fraud? Was it dumb oversight? Take your pick. There's probably good reasons to think that either might be true. In November, the verdict came down. Headline, Carr fined $5,000 for saucer deal. I, I think that means he was guilty. During the trial, there was a news cameraman. This is, this is weird. There was a news cameraman in the courtroom, and someone later identified as one of the investors got up and struck the camera and, and sort of pushed the camera back into the cameraman, and the cameraman was injured so badly that the investor was actually charged with, you know, assault. Carr's testimony that's described in the recap of a trial is a little funny and a little sad. When asked about his finances, Carr said he has $1.71 in the firm's bank account. The inventor said the firm's revenues came from the sale of plans for the X-1. He also told about the construction of a space ride at Frontier City. However, he admitted under cross-examination that one of the terms of the contract was that OTC Enterprises would not profit from the ride until the X-1 was flown at Frontier City. Now, I may be a little gullible here, but why on earth would Carr not take any money from the carnival ride unless the X-1 saucer was flown first? If he didn't think he could get it to fly because it was a, a scam or whatever, why agree to holding off profits until the thing flew? Now, I'm not saying he had a solid plan for going to the moon or anything, but I have to think that he might have thought he was on to something, even if that something was a working, conventionally powered model that he could use to convince more people to invest in the X-1. 
Speaking of the X1, this article featured what might be my favorite exchange of 1959. The prosecutor referred to the craft as a thing, and Carr immediately and petulantly butted in from the defense table, it's not a thing, it is the OTC X1. Now that, my friends, is a man who is continuing to work the marks until the very last moment. Carr would fade into obscurity, dying in the early 80s in Pittsburgh. Wayne Aho would escape relatively unscathed, the charges against him being dropped. He would continue his saucer activities into the 1960s and beyond. Now, following the Otis T. Carr debacle, Aho continued working in Washington with his Washington Saucer Intelligence Organization, which also served as a conduit for disseminating Aho's predictions about Earth's dire future, which included sending accounts of his encounters via registered mail to President John F. Kennedy in 1961. It also included poetry. What is it with these people and poetry? We've had so much poetry in various publications that we've dealt with over the last three, almost, gosh, almost three years. It's bizarre. It's just bizarre. Or maybe everybody thinks poetry is more useful than I do. I maybe. So among Aho's adventures on the speaking circuit was his stay in a mental ward. This is from the December 31st, 1961 issue of Gray Barker's Saucerian Bulletin. Some mystery still surrounds the unfortunate case of Major Wayne Aho, director of Washington Saucer Intelligence, who was placed in a mental hospital in central Islip, Long Island, New York. Major Aho was picked up on March 29th and taken to the mental ward of Bellevue Hospital in New York. He was kept there until April 20th, at which time he was transferred to central Islip. He was released afterward. His detention followed closely a lecture he gave in New York on March 25th. According to a newsletter issued by James W. Mosley's Saucer News, Major Aho changed the expected lecture to a religious discussion. It was said that the speaker appeared to be controlled or under some sort of hypnotic influence. There was some suggestion in some Saucer newsletters, well, one, um, that was mentioned in the Greg Bishop Adam Go Rightly book, A is for Adamski, that there was one um, newsletter publisher who was sort of a, a John Birch Society type who believed that Aho's mental in mental ward incarceration or, or hospitalization was an attempt to uh, to shut him up by the communists. Aho's work would continue to be in a more religious bent as the years went on. Douglas Curran, in his amazing book *In Advance of the Landings: Folk Concepts of Outer Space*, discusses the conventions Aho would stage near Mount Rainier National Park. Mount Rainier being where Kenneth Arnold saw those flying saucers back in 1947. Aho bought an old campground and established the Spacecraft Protective Landing Area for Advancement of Science and Humanities, or SPLASH. Actually, there's two A's in there. SPLASH. This is what he calls a free landing zone, a place of safety for any interstellar or human travelers to visit and experience rituals, healing ceremonies, and other wonders. Curran describes the atmosphere this way. Aho's New Age Foundation is amorphous, flexible enough in its tenets to allow believers from a broad range of other groups to attend and enjoy its functions. During the proceedings, I talked with people ranging from a successful middle-aged Seattle lawyer and his wife to Gore-Tex-clad back-to-the-landers to a group of upbeat singles in a Mercedes coupe. Participants at the convention often present lectures or lead seminars in their field of interest. Doc Johnson practices psychic chiropractic, 
Using neural pressure points, he locates areas of weakness or ill health caused by psychic inhibitions. With his corrections, he can multiply or reduce the power in all parts of the patient's body. Following the chiropractic workshop, he makes a pitch for a line of motor oil additives he carries as a sideline. Aho continued to be active in the UFO scene, particularly in the West, until very near his death in 2006. He's one of those guys who sometimes gets lost in the cracks of the contactee scene, with his association with Otis T. Carr kind of overshadowing his longevity in the field. Yes, the field. If abduction hypnotists and those alien alloys types can pretend to be part of some kind of scholarly collective, then why not? It's all the field. And the community he built up at Splash um, sort of gets lost there. It's not the Aetherius Society, but what is? It's cool. It's a psychic chiropractor selling motor oil additives. That's great. And what of Otis T. Carr's legacy? Well, it lives on, mostly, through the work of one Ralph Ring. Ring, according to his website, is, quote, one of the surviving members of a team of technicians and scientists who worked for the legendary inventor Otis T. Carr, end quote. See, and you thought OTC Enterprises was just... Otis T. Carr and Wayne Aho and a couple of other guys. No, they had a team of technicians and scientists. Ring's site has a huge amount of information on it. There's a link in the show notes, and there are a lot of interviews with him out there. But the upshot is he believes the government suppressed Carr's free energy's ideas and railroaded him. That's not a hugely surprising conclusion one might reach, but free energy is a little beyond the boundaries of the show, and we're running long, so whoosh. Thanks for listening. In the show notes are links to various materials related to Aho and Carr, as well as to Ralph Ring's website. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. Special sound was by the Chizo Radiophonic Workshop, a wholly owned subsidiary of Chizo Media LLC. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. Mm-hmm.